passage I'm reading this morning is found in 2 Samuel, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. In April of this year, Bobby Petrino, the University of Arkansas football coach, highly successful on an upward track, doing great, but he was in a motorcycle accident, crashed in a ditch, injured himself, and on the back of his motorcycle was a 25-year-old employee of his that he had hired, half his age, with whom he had been having an affair. His whole world collapsed at that time. Recently, he was interviewed, and these are some of the things he said. I have played it over and over in my head a million times. How could I do this? How could this happen? Not just the hiring of her or that day, but my actions, my behavior for months. It was just wrong. How could I put what we had in jeopardy, Petrino said. That is what I wake up early every morning thinking about, what I lay in bed thinking about. Why? Petrino lost $21 million in potential earnings and what he called his dream job. But worse, Petrino said was having put the relationship with his wife and children in jeopardy. The hardest moment, he said, was sitting down with his wife, Becky, and admitting that he'd been unfaithful. Looking at the look in her eyes, Petrino said, how could I possibly do something like this to hurt her? The anger, the feeling of how could you possibly do this to me? I've gone over it a number of times in my mind, Petrino said. How did I end up off the road? I'm still not exactly sure. I don't know how I ended up in that ditch. You know, no one starts out to destroy their lives, to ruin their marriage, to hurt their kids and their family, to get thrown in jail, 
to lose a job. And yet, we do it. (laughs) How does this happen, especially to some truly good people, to believers who have walked with Jesus for a long time? Well, the Bible tells us. It's not a surprise. Even strong believers can end up in a ditch like Bobby Petrino. If not an affair, maybe something else. Some kind of illegal activity, caught cheating on your taxes, drug use, addictions to pornography or food or other things that do harm. Rageaholic, becoming an abuser, destroyed relationships and more. How does this happen? How does it happen to truly good people? Well, Romans chapters 4 and following make it clear. 4 and 5 of chapter Romans are wonderful statements of the incredible forgiveness we have in Christ through the cross. God's grace is poured out on us. And even though we fall short of the glory of God, yet God's forgiveness is there. If we put our faith in Christ, we are justified by faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are made new creatures It's an incredible testimony of goodness and greatness of the grace of God. But then chapter 6, Paul goes on to say, but then shall we sin that grace might increase? If grace is so great and grace covers our sin, then should we continue to sin? And he makes several statements about why, no, we cannot give in to sin. And two, he makes very clearly. Number one, we must not choose sin even though we know God will forgive us, because sin is enslaving. It's a harsh taskmaster. And you give into it, and it becomes a master that enslaves you. Secondly, he says, you must not give in to sin because there are always consequences. The wages of sin is death, he says. You can't get away from those truths, those facts. So over the next two weeks, we'll be looking at how those two spiritual truths are lived out in the life of David. King David, a man after God's own heart, one that loved God and trusted God in many ways, and yet he, even a man after God's own heart, chooses to give in to sin in our passage today. And as he does so, he experiences those spiritual truths, those laws that we cannot escape from, Sin is always enslaving. Sin always has consequences. And this passage in David's life serves as a great warning to all of us. No matter how godly you may think you are, no matter how long you've walked with God, no matter how mature you may be, you and I are always vulnerable. As God said to Cain, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for how true the scriptures are to our lives. And thank you for David's life, a man who learned to walk by faith and yet was made of clay, just like every one of us in this room. And Lord, as we look at his incredible failure in this passage, how he turned his back on you and became enslaved 
to sin. I pray that your spirit would speak to each one of us in those areas where we tend to compromise and let sin have its way. Lord, help us learn to walk with you in the power of your spirit that we might experience the freedom from sin that you long for us to experience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So how does sin bite us? If it's crouching at the door, how does it, how does it get us and what does it do to us? We know in this passage, you know the story where David ends up. Adultery, murder, what a mess. How did David get there though? A man after God's own heart. Well, as we'll see in this passage, it began with very small choices. Very seemingly insignificant choices to let sin have its way. You see, big sins always start with small choices to put your will above God's. To say, well, I know, you mean, I know what you say, God, but... but I just need to feel better right now. I just need whatever. And we put our will above his own. We say, not your will, God, but mine. And when we do that, we put sin on the throne of our lives and we are in grave danger. That's what David does here. Notice how it begins. It says, in the time of the springtime. Now, suddenly... The mud is dried up. The rainy season's over. Now you can move your troops. It's time to go to war. They need to defeat their enemies. And it says that the times when kings should be at war, David stays home. David remained at home. And late one afternoon in the evening, it says when he got up from his bed, literally it's his bed, he's sleeping in the afternoon He should be out at war, but he chooses not to. You see, I think this big sin of David began with small choices to be lazy. To say, no, I'm not going to go fight. Uh, You know, I'm I'm king now. Finally, my kingdom is all in place. You know, I feel good about myself and the troops can handle it. I don't need to go fight. Begins with laziness. And it says, literally, in the Hebrew, it says he was walking back and forth on the roof of his house. Now, we're not told exactly what he was doing, but we do know what happened. He saw Bathsheba bathing. And I suspect what David was doing here is he's surveying his glorious kingdom. (laughs) I'm king now! Wow, look at it! And it says he was walking back and forth, looking around over his city, the city of David, it's called. And he's looking at his people and all the power he's got. You see, I think laziness led to pride. And that pride, as he let it live, he didn't turn to God with it immediately. He let it live, and as that pride lives in him, then he sees a beautiful woman bathing from his roof. Now that could have been a wonderful opportunity for David to just turn away from sin at that point. Think about it for a minute. David, at this point, has at least two wives, maybe more. He ends up with at least six. And we're told a number of concubines as well. You see, David had plenty of opportunity to get his sexual needs met. (laughs) 
And this would have been a great opportunity to say, wow, there's a beautiful woman. Lord, thank you for my godly wife, Abigail. Thank you that my needs are already taken care of. Thank you that you've provided for me everything I need. But does David do that? No. In fact, David doesn't turn to God at all in this passage, in this whole chapter. The name of God is not mentioned once until the very last verse. David's left God out of it. He's running the show. He's decided he's going to give in to sin and he's going to go with it rather than turn to God. So, he sees a beautiful woman, he lusts for her. That lust becomes covetousness. He says, go inquire about who is this incredibly beautiful woman. Let me know who she is. He begins to covet another man's wife. He's told it's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, Uriah is a very interesting person. (laughs) Uriah is a Hittite. He's a Canaanite. He's one of the sworn enemies of Israel. But David had a big heart and he welcomed him in and Uriah was a man who became one of David's most trusted men. We're told he's one of David's 30 mighty men. He's a great warrior for Israel. He's a convert to Judaism. We don't know what his original Hittite name was, but he took on the name Uriah. In Hebrew, Uriah, that name means Yahweh, the Lord, is my light. You see, his life was transformed. He, he trusted in Yahweh. He trusted in God. And he was a trustworthy, faithful warrior for David and a good friend. But all David thinks about right now is, I want to be satisfied. I'm on the throne. What he doesn't realize is he's not really on the throne at all. He's given himself to sin and now sin is running his life. So he gives in to lust and covetousness. And it's interesting to me that from here on out in the passage, Bathsheba's name is never mentioned. She's always referred to as the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, as if to remind us that now where David has gone is betrayal of a dear friend. And sin always leads us eventually to betrayal of the close relationships in our lives. We think we think we can keep it secret. We think we can dabble in this or that, but it always affects those closest to us. It's betrayal. Like all adultery, what David does here is he steals another man's wife. He steals her. So this covetousness becomes sending for her. It says in verse 4, David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now think about this for a moment. We, we don't know Bathsheba's reaction here. We don't know her response. In fact, she is the silent victim in this entire passage except when she sends a message to David to say, I'm pregnant. Otherwise, she's a silent victim. So what is David really doing here? Is it adultery? Sure, but it's more than that. This is rape, folks. This is David, who is king, who has all power, sending for her and forcing her 
to satisfy his own desires. This is sexual assault. How does a man after God's own heart who loves and submits to God and refuses to kill Saul when he had opportunity get to a place of committing rape? Sin is enslaving. Eight times in this passage, David is said to send. He sends messengers for Bathsheba. He sends her back. He sends Joab out. He sends for Uriah. He, he sends, he sends, he sends. He's usurping God's place to make himself God. He's the active one. He's in control. He's manipulating others, sending them to satisfy his own desires. Taking things in his own hands, controlling others for his own ends, and that's what we end up doing when we choose sin. We manipulate others for our own ends. Well, David did this, but at least he got away with it, right? And then verse 5 shows up. Bathsheba conceives, since she sends word, I'm pregnant. Now David has a problem. You see, sin always catches up with us. No matter how much you think you might have hidden it and that no one else will know, it's always found out. You cannot get away with it because God sees. God always sees. So David feels like, now I've got to cover it up. She's pregnant. What do I do? He sends for Uriah, brings him back from the war. He thinks, all right, I'll just have him sleep with her, you know, and they'll, they just won't pay a lot of attention to how many months it is. They'll think he's the father, so I'll get by. This will be great. So calls him back, sends Uriah home, says, hey, go home. Here's a present. You know, you fought hard. Go hang out at home and... Have a great time. That's essentially what he says. He says, go wash your feet. That's a euphemism for go sleep with your wife. Go enjoy some time with your family. But what David doesn't count on is that Uriah is far more godly than he is. (laughs) Uriah at this point says, I'm not going. I'm not going to go home. Not when the army of God is out fighting war. And those men don't get to be home. I'm not going to go home. I'm going to sleep in front of the palace gate. So David's plan is not working so well. (laughs) Notice verse 10. When they told David, Uriah didn't go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why didn't you go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? He knows exactly what David is encouraging him to do. As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. You see, this should have been taken as a rebuke to David, shouldn't it have been? I mean... Uriah is saying, hey, I'm not going to do that. This is your opportunity, David, to respond to the Lord. Here's a godly man who's not going to play along with your plan. But he ignores that. He just thinks, okay, I've got to come up with plan B. 
Plan B is to get Uriah drunk. And maybe if I get him drunk enough, his inhibitions will go down and he'll go sleep with his wife. So he gets him drunk, we're told. Verse 13, invited him, ate in his presence and drank, so he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. David can't win, can he? (laughs) So now he's got to go to plan C. Plan C is, okay, if I can't get him to sleep with his wife, then I've got to get rid of Uriah. And this is where he makes the plan to kill him. Verse 14, In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Think about it. This is his good friend. And talk about betrayal. He writes a letter and it says this, verse 15, In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And he writes this out, seals the letter and makes Uriah carry it to Joab. What a horrible betrayal. And again, think about this as David. This is a man after God's own heart, God's chosen king. And yet this is the kind of manipulation and deceit he's caught in. And it works. Joab did this. Men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. It works. And guess what? Nobody knows except David and Joab and of course Bathsheba. But I'm struck by how hard David's heart is here, isn't it? This man who trusted God before so much, he's gotten to a place of murder. Well, then they send a messenger back. Joab makes sure that David, it's all controlled so that David knows exactly, you know, what's going on. And he, he tells him, okay, make sure when you, when you go give him the message, yeah, we lost some men, but make sure you tell him that Uriah the Hittite is also dead. So verse 22, the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. How would David respond? David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. We really miss a phrase in there by our translations. Literally in the Hebrew where it says, Don't let this matter displease you. Literally it's, Joab, do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. You've just carried out a murder for me to cover up adultery and rape and lying and deceit. But Joab, don't let this be evil in your eyes. Don't see this as a bad thing. 
In Romans chapter 1, it talks about what happens when people turn their back on God and how far we get away from Him and the awful things we end up in. And at the very end, it says, here's the full extent of our rebellion against God. When we get to a place where we call evil good, where we redefine what is good and what is evil. And that's exactly what David is doing here. He's saying, don't let this be seen as evil in your eyes, Joab. Now, this is a good thing. You know, it's part of the plan. It just shows how far David has fallen when he is now redefining what is good and what is evil. When we play God, instead of submitting to what God defines as good or evil. A while back, a woman was sitting in my office and she said, my husband's been really mean to me and I know I have the right to divorce him and I have the right to do this and that because, you know, he's just been terrible to me. And six pastors have, that I've talked to have told me I have the right to divorce him. What do you say? And I kind of sat there and thought, you know, why are you talking to another pastor? And I said, you know, it sounds to me like deep down, you know what God says. You know what's right here. You don't need to talk to another pastor. You need to submit to what God's already showing you. Otherwise, why, why are you here? I don't know how many people have sat in my office or I've talked to over coffee who have redefined sin. I've said, well, yeah, I know, I know the Bible says that, but, but God really wants me to be happy. So it's okay. Or, no, you just misunderstand my situation. If you really understood, you'd know God's on my side when I choose this sin. Or, no, you're just misunderstanding that passage. That passage doesn't apply to me. I've had a number of people do that, and it's because they're just like David. You know, when you give in to sin in small areas, eventually it's on the throne and it gets you to a place where you end up having to redefine sin. Have you been there? Most of us have at some point in our lives where we try to redefine sin because we want what we want. But if you're in that place where you are redefining what's good and what's evil, you are in grave danger because you are truly enslaved to sin like David is here. So the chapter ends with these verses. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. It worked. Nobody knows except Joab and David and Bathsheba. She's in his house now. She's his wife. They can have the son. Everything's great. Except for that last little phrase of the chapter. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Again, in the Hebrew, remember earlier, David had said, do not let this thing be seen as evil in your eyes, Joab. Literally, 
What this passage says is, but it was evil, the thing which David had done in the eyes of the Lord. David was trying to redefine it, but God's evaluation is the only one that really matters. (laughs) And God's evaluation is, David, what you've done is evil. And next week we'll see how God steps into his life to bring about repentance, forgiveness, but also the consequences of his life and the choices. Folks, God is never fooled. God sees, as someone told me in between services after first service, he said, God loves us too much, so he always keeps his eyes on us. He always watches us because he loves us too much. God sees. He makes sure we don't get away with sin. And God always makes sure that sin pays its wages. Why? Because he loves us that much. Does he forgive us? Absolutely. Does sin destroy our relationship with God? No. Not if we're willing to turn to him. But there are still consequences and sin still can enslave us. Why? Because God's a holy God and he calls us to be like him so we can experience the freedom of life in Christ, freedom from sin and selfishness and having ourselves on the throne. Well, this is a sobering passage, obviously. There's some truths I want to, as we close, I want to highlight for us that we can learn from this passage. Number one, we are all vulnerable to sin, every one of us. And if you happen to think you're not capable of doing what David did, not capable of murder, not capable of rape, not capable of adultery, not capable of destroying relationships by choosing sin, then you are in trouble. (laughs) Because every one of us in this room is vulnerable. No one, no matter how mature, can ever let down his or her guard because sin is crouching at the door and sin is a whole lot more powerful than us. Secondly, small choices lead to big sins. For David, laziness led to pride, which led to lust, which led to covetousness, which led to betrayal, which led to deceit, which led to murder, which led to redefining good and evil. So let this be an encouragement to us to make sure we're committed to integrity, even in the small things of life. There's no area we can say, I get to run this part of my life, God, you can't have it. Because everything is his, even the small areas. So deal with your anger. Deal with those little areas that you tend to hang on to. David ends up violating at least six of the Ten Commandments, if not more, in this one chapter. Watch your tongue. Deal with lying. Deal with gossip. Don't let these things, these Seemingly little things live in your life. Small choices lead to big sins. Deal faithfully with your money. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't cheat on your taxes. Don't do those things, but decide you're going to be a person of integrity in every little area. Third, we each have areas we are especially vulnerable in that we need to watch out for. 
David's area was sexual sin. David ended up marrying six wives. He had concubines. It's an area in his life he never really dealt with. And the result was it got him into big trouble. In the end, it affected his children. David had his problems, but think about Solomon. Six, 700 wives, 300 concubines. David had sexual issues. His son was clearly a sexual addict in today's terminology. <laughs> Those sins get carried on that create strongholds that go on in our family if we don't deal with them. So deal with your weak areas. Many men struggle with sexual issues. We're, we're vulnerable. I have on my computer a filter. I also have accountability software. So if I look at anything questionable, it gets sent out to a friend so he knows immediately. I also have high hedges up so that I will not travel in a car or meet alone in public or in privately or any situation with uh, someone of the opposite sex, except my wife. If there's anything questionable, I talk to her about it immediately. This week, we went as a staff to go visit Helen McKinley when she was in her last couple of days. And turned out all the staff had left except one of the women pastors and me. They'd all carpooled, and we planned to carpool, but we have a rule. We don't travel with the person of the opposite sex one-on-one. So we each had to take our own car. It was kind of inconvenient. But you know what? You've got to be committed to integrity. You, don't, you set up hedges and you just don't cross those boundaries. Fourth, Christ does want to free us from the power of sin, and he can. The way Paul puts it in Galatians is, if we walk in the Spirit, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. As we learn to, to let Jesus really be Lord of our lives and we walk in the power of the Spirit and depend on Him, we can be free from those dark areas. But we have to stay plugged into Jesus. We have to know that I cannot make it on my own. I need other believers. So we have to share our weak areas of vulnerability with one another and have people praying for us and encouraging us. The Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. We have to have that kind of accountability. And be ruthless with sin in your own life. Root it out. Confess it and go back to God immediately. If you feel enslaved to things you cannot get rid of, see a Christian counselor. See your pastor. Talk to somebody. Get help. Don't stay trapped and out of control. And then fifth and finally, there is forgiveness in Christ. He died for all that. All our sins, past, present, and future, are covered by the blood so we can come to Him. Never let shame over your sinfulness keep you from going directly back to Jesus immediately when you, as soon as you've seen you've done something wrong. Go to Him immediately and receive His forgiveness. He'll give it to you freely. He loves you. And experience the joy of forgiveness and life in Him. Don't end up where David did. Don't end up where Bobby Petrino did. But instead, use this to encourage yourself to deal with sin quickly. 
to go to him and ask him to change you so you begin to walk with him on the throne rather than self. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for how incredibly true to life the scriptures are. We thank you that David, who was called a man after your own heart, who you handpicked because of his heart for you, could fail so majorly. It just shows he's just like us. And Lord, may this inspire us to cling to you ever more strongly and clearly, to, to deal with those areas of life that begin to enslave us and draw us away from you. Lord, may we be people who are learning to walk in righteousness. And when we fail, may we come quickly to you for forgiveness and cleansing that we may get back on the path that you want us to walk. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.